Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today, we're discussing chapter 24 in this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. This is our group learning program that meets on Sundays and Wednesdays. Each Sunday, we cover a topic in this book that tracks along throughout the entire book, sharing teachings with you about Gautama Buddha's path to enlightenment. And the aim in this program is to help you understand his teachings so that you're not believing them, but instead that you can learn them, reflect on them, and practice them and see the truth for yourself that as you practice, the condition of the mind and the condition of your life improves. Because this enlightened mental state is all about training the mind to acquire wisdom. Through you independently verifying the teachings to discover the truth, you can then acquire wisdom, which leads to improved decision-making in your life. The Buddha never actually told people what to do or what not to do, but instead he provided guidance that would help you to purify the mind, train the mind, eradicating all the pollution or the defilements that are in the mind inhibiting you from experiencing a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. When he taught over 2,500 years ago until today, there's been many different traditions or modifications that have been made along the way that have kind of muddied the water, so to speak, or kind of made it more challenging to understand what exactly is the path to enlightenment and how would one learn this path and then practice it in order to attain enlightenment. So throughout the book, all the other chapters are meant to help you see through the words of the Buddha, going back to the original source, which is the Pali Canon, to see exactly what the teachings are. And now that we've done that throughout this program, this is an excellent time to share with you some of the misunderstandings that you're going to see in the world, which will help you to further clarify and be able to see the path to enlightenment. Because that's the ultimate goal, is that the more clear this path is, the more illuminated that it is, the more that you'll be able to learn it, reflect on it, and practice it to see the truth through acquiring wisdom. So today we're going to talk about some of the more common misunderstandings in the teachings of the Buddha. There's plenty of misunderstandings that exist in the world, but these are kind of some of the more common ones that you're going to see out there because if you move into other groups or you go to various Buddhist communities, you probably are going to be curious of why you see certain things that you see. And this is a great time to help you clarify that so that as you observe certain things in various communities, you'll understand how they either relate to the Buddhist teachings or they don't relate to the Buddhist teachings. 
So thank you all for being here. I'm really pleased that you decided to learn and practice the Buddhist teachings. As we go throughout our class today, just like always, you're welcome to ask questions. The way that you would do that is in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. You can put your comments into the comment section of Facebook, YouTube, and Zoom. If you're in Zoom, though, you can raise your hand electronically and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So as we get started, feel free that when I pause for questions that you can put those into the comment section at any point and our moderators will see those or you can raise your hand electronically and get your question asked during the class. So let's go ahead and talk, first of all, about the various traditions that are in Buddhism. This isn't necessarily a misunderstanding. This is just helping you understand what currently exists. Because during the lifetime of the Buddha, it was him and his students. And then, of course, there were lots of other teachers around that were teaching what they claimed was the path to enlightenment. But after he died, things kind of morphed and changed from there. The Buddha himself wasn't a Buddhist. The word Buddhist or this label that we sometimes use doesn't actually apply to the Buddha himself because that term didn't exist. So what the Buddha actually taught can be found in what we call the Pali Canon. This is the largest collection of his teachings. It's the most comprehensive collection that we have of his teachings. We call it the Pali Canon because it's in the Pali language. And that's no longer a spoken language today. So there's not really agreement on what one word means versus another word. But nowadays, the Pali Canon has been translated into languages like Thai here in Thailand. They have it in Thai. And now we have it in English. And there's other languages that it's been translated into as well. The Theravada Buddhist tradition which is considered to be the tradition that is basing its teachings closest to the lifetime of the Buddha, bases their teachings off of the Pali Canon, this large, most comprehensive collection of his teachings. It's primarily hosted in South and Southeast Asia. So you'll see Theravada Buddhism in places like Miramar, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, Southern Vietnam, Sri Lanka, but in reality, even though this is kind of like the focal point of the Theravada Buddhist tradition, you'll see it all over the world, even in places like America and the UK and other places, because these teachings have really spread all over the world. But it's South and Southeast Asia that is really kind of like the real focal point or the host of the Theravada Buddhist teachings because they've been there the longest. The word Theravada means teachings of the elders. And we call it that because it's considered to be the form of the teachings that dates back to the closest time to the lifetime of the Buddha, basing the teachings off of the Pali Canon. You might see some people call the Theravada tradition the Hinayana tradition or the lesser vehicle. This is kind of like a derogatory name that's kind of was in use many years ago, many decades ago. But people nowadays more or less use Theravada Buddhism or Theravada tradition, or some people will say Theravada school. If you see people using the word Hinayana, it's just that they probably don't understand that it's kind of like a derogatory word that people use to kind of push it down and they say it, it's not as good as these other versions or these other traditions that have come after 
Theravada because the Theravada tradition considers that its tradition started with the Buddha himself. And then once the Pali Canon was written down and it's been shared all these years, it's just continued to grow. In reality, these teachings really live in the hearts and the minds of individuals because there is no centralized organization that's collected up the Theravada Buddhist teachings and disseminates them out into the world. They're really just living in the hearts and the minds of individuals. And this is one of the challenges and why that impermanence has affected the teachings to the point where now we've got all these different traditions and all these different sects that are doing different things with Buddhism and calling it Buddhism. So the second major tradition or major school of Buddhism that we have, it's called Mahayana Buddhism. And then there's lots of different offshoots or sects of this. This particular form of Buddhism is really primarily hosted in East Asia, like in China. And there's, of course, spread out all over the world. There's, you know, China, there's kind of northern Vietnam, but it's, again, spread out through all different places in the world, like the U.S., the U.K., Australia, and many places throughout the world, South America, and different places like that. And people will refer to this type of Buddhism as the greater vehicle. In the third tradition of Buddhism, it's called Vajrayana Buddhism. This is primarily hosted in Tibet, Bhutan, Mongolia, and the Russian Republic of Kalmykia. And this is the form of Buddhism that the Dalai Lama practices. And you can see the different forms of Buddhism if you know the different clothing, the different imagery, the different statues. You can kind of look at a temple or you can look at a individual practitioner or you can talk to them and you can kind of know what tradition of Buddhism that they're practicing. In the Theravada tradition, the thought is that they're interested in keeping the teachings as close to what the Buddha taught during his lifetime as possible because we feel that that's what actually leads to enlightenment, what the Buddha discovered as the teachings. But then, as these other forms of Buddhism come out over 500, 1,000, 1,200 years later, they start to morph and they start to change and they start to inject other things into the teachings that the Buddha didn't actually teach. So, for example, the Buddha during his lifetime taught that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship doesn't lead to enlightenment. So he doesn't actually teach any rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. But by the time Mahayana Buddhism starts to be brought into the world and Vajrayana Buddhism is brought into the world, you start seeing these rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship start to be included into these other traditions. And the people who are part of the Theravada Buddhist tradition feel that those things aren't what leads to enlightenment, so we're not interested in practicing them. We're interested in gaining this wisdom or this understanding of what the Buddha actually taught because we understand that that's what leads to enlightenment is gaining this wisdom and transforming the mind, training it away from these three poisons of craving, anger, and ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. We also call these the three unwholesome roots or the three fires. So these are kind of a real quick overview of the three major schools or the three major traditions. And you'll see teachings that are very different from one tradition to the next. The remaining part of the class, I'm going to be focusing on specific misunderstandings that evolve 
within the Theravada tradition, but also within the Mahayana and Vajrayana tradition as well. I mainly focus this chapter on the misunderstandings that you're going to see within the Theravada tradition, because even within the Theravada tradition, there's a lot of folklore and mythology and uh, myths that kind of have worked their way into the teachings. Because when Buddhism came to a place like Thailand about 800 to 1200 years ago, it was already about 1200 to 1300 years after the Buddha died. Well, by the time the Buddha died until the teachings start, you know, moving throughout the world, the Thai people had their own traditions. They had certain folk traditions and certain things that they were practicing. So when Buddhism starts making its way into Thailand, it's not like somebody made a grand announcement in Thailand and said, okay, Buddhism has arrived. This is Friday. On Monday, we're going to throw out everything that we've been doing for many, many generations and that all your ancestors have taught you. We're going to throw all that away. And then on Monday, we're going to be on, you know, version Buddhism 2.0 or something like that. It's not like that's what happened. It's not like there's this clean cutover to Buddhism. Instead, what happens is there's this gradual progression of more and more Buddhism coming into Thailand. And then there's this merging of folk traditions and mythical creatures and certain rites and rituals. And even Hinduism kind of blends in with Buddhism in, in some communities, even here within Thailand. But it's when you go back to the Pali Canon and you see what the Buddha actually taught and you practice that, not believing it, but you practice it and see the truth for yourself, that you can see exactly what the Buddha taught because it's improving the condition of the mind. It's becoming more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And the discontentedness is slowly diminishing as you learn and practice more and more of his teachings. That's how you know you're learning the truth. So the rest of this talk is all going to be about misunderstandings related primarily to the Theravada Buddhist tradition. But there's some others in these other traditions that are pretty significant that you're going to see in your travel. So I included those as well. So remember, the whole reason why all of this is happening is because what the Buddha taught is this universal truth of impermanence. You know, it's impossible for him to have taught 2,500 years ago and for those teachings to sustain in the world perfectly. And he actually predicted that his teachings would degrade over time. And he gave guidance of how that was going to happen, when that was going to happen, and so forth and so on. So that universal truth of impermanence of things gradually changing, it's affected the Buddhist teachings. It's affected Jesus Christ teachings. It's affected Prophet Muhammad's teachings and everyone's teachings. And it's only when you don't believe any of the teachings, but you practice them and see the truth for yourself that you can see the condition of the mind improving. And then you know what are the actual teachings themselves. So let me just pause here before we move into talking more in this class and really discussing the individual misunderstandings to see if you guys have any questions on these three schools and kind of why we're in the position that we're in where there's all these different views and opinions about what the Buddha actually taught. The way that you ask a question is you can put your comment into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and our moderators will see that and make sure your question gets asked during the class. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask your question or follow-up question directly. 
how they live, looking at the various traditions and schools of Buddhism, would you say that, especially as we began on the path, that it's recommended that we focus on one school, perhaps with one teacher to avoid misunderstanding? Yes, that's what I feel is best because some people, they take the approach that they would like to learn all three of these. And that, to me, really dilutes whatever is there because it's kind of like, you know, taking three different disciplines and trying to put them together on your own. They don't necessarily match up and connect with each other. But by sticking with just one, then you can get the purity and the understanding of that one tradition. And if the teacher is teaching you in the way that the Buddha taught, you should be able to learn with a teacher in just a few weeks. You should start seeing the truth more and more for yourself that the teacher can share the teachings with you. You can go off and independently confirm the teachings that they're true. You can practice those teachings and you can see the condition of the minds improving. If what you're being taught is based in rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship and belief, then you know that this isn't what the Buddha taught and it's not going to lead to enlightenment. But to your question, James, of sticking with just one tradition and one teacher, you should be able to see within a few weeks or a few months that that is helping you in improving your mind and improving your life. And if you're not seeing that, then maybe you should move on to another teacher or another tradition in order to find the right fit for you. Thank you, David. Let's go to Nick now. Hello, teacher David. Uh, quick question. These are the three uh, main schools, uh, I'm assuming in, in, in popularity, like the most people are practicing these three, but I've also seen seven more, like a list of 10 schools. Do schools like the Zen school fall under one of these three, like Mayana or Yogacara, does that fall under these, these other seven? Are they just subsections of these three main? Yeah, a lot of them are. So like Zen Buddhism is an offshoot of Mahayana Buddhism, but then it's kind of its own unique thing too, but it's kind of an offshoot of Mahayana. But these are the three major traditions. And then most of the other sects that you'll see or subcategories that you're calling them are offshoots of these. Offshoots, okay, that's a better mm -hmm. term. Yeah. Thank and, you, teacher. I understand. Yeah, you're welcome. And so when the Buddha died, you know, he never set up a centralized organization that disseminated his teachings because as soon as he does, if he set up that organization, it's impermanent. So, you know, the Buddha having the forethought, you know, a Buddha is not going to set up an organization to collect and distribute his teachings because he would know that that organization is impermanent. So, really, these teachings have kind of made their way around the world and different people will incorporate different things and what i've always felt is important is looking at what did the buddha actually teach during his lifetime because when you learn that and you don't believe it but you learn it reflect on it and practice it then you can see the truth for yourself and everything that i've ever needed has been found within the theravada buddhist tradition the pali canon itself has a, a multitude of teachings and very comprehensive to share exactly what the buddha taught and you don't have to believe it you can just learn it reflect on it and practice it and see the truth for yourself one follow-up question uh, that came to mind how would you describe the dalai lama's role um 
not knowing anything, I would think his organization, would that be the central organization? Is that what he's trying to do? Or what exactly is his role? How would you explain that to, to viewers? The simplest way to think about the Dalai Lama is he's another monk, just like every other monk that's part of Buddhism. So he's within the Vajrayana Buddhist tradition or Buddhist school, and he's a monk. But he's a really well-known monk based on his position that they have as part of the Dalai Lama. I don't understand Vajrayana Buddhism, and I don't even really understand Mahayana Buddhism very much. I know a little bit about what they teach there, just enough on a surface level. But you can think of the Dalai Lama, even though he's a public figure and really well-known, you can think of him as just like every other monk even though he has a certain position within the Vajrayana tradition that people really respect him for the role that he fulfills. But in all intensive purposes, he really is just another monk, but with a higher profile than the average monk. Higher profile to include um, political influence. I know he goes to other countries. Yeah, Would you say that's true? I've, I've seen the Dalai Lama talk about his role is you know, partially political and partially as a kind of spiritual guide, so to speak, where when the Buddha taught, if you look in the Pali Canon, he taught not to be involved in politics, that that's what the Buddha did during his lifetime. So, you know, Dalai Lama talks about his teachings and what he feels is best, and he's guiding people the best that he can based on what he knows. You know, people moving from a Christian background into Buddhism will sometimes think the Dalai Lama is kind of equivalent to the Pope if they know about the Pope in, in the Catholic tradition, but that's not the same thing. The Pope is, of course, the leader of the Catholic tradition that was elected by, you know, a certain group of people. The Dalai Lama, I think he's probably the default leader of the Vajrayana uh, Buddhist tradition. But it's not the same as the Pope. You could really kind of think of him as just another monk, but with a high profile and really well known across the world. Thank you for the clarification, Venable, sir. Yeah, you're welcome. Any other questions you guys Hello. have? Yes, so we have a question from Anastasio. He asks, in Theravada Buddhism, is there a leader like Dalai Lama for Vajrayana? There is not. From what I understand, each country might have a certain leader. So like here in Thailand, there's certain monks that are associated with the king of Thailand, and they're kind of considered to be like really high position within the Theravada tradition, but that's only within Thailand. And then there's two different sects within Theravada within Thailand. There's the layman's way to think of it is like there's the city monks and there's the forest monks, or the more appropriate word is the Damayut and Damagai. These are two different sects. You'll see the city monks wearing kind of a brighter orange robe, and the forest monks will be wearing kind of a duller, darker orange color robe. And about 90% of the monks in Thailand are from the city monks, and they perform different roles within society, but there's really no one person that everybody looks to as being the leader of the Theravada Buddhist tradition. It's really these teachings exist in the hearts and minds of individuals all throughout the world. And what you essentially get to is you have individual temples within each individual community, and each individual temple does things their own way. 
And this is where a lot of this impermanence comes in that, you know, if somebody was brought up in one way and they were influenced in one way or another based on folk traditions or myths or other things like this, if the leader of the temple was not basing their practice in the original teachings of the Buddha from the Pali Canon, then each individual temple can have a huge variety of so many different things that are being shared in that community. We have a question, David, from Facebook, from Rastislav. He asks, how does Theravada understand or accept the ideal of Bodhisattva in Mahayana slash Theravada traditions? Is that even possible to reach that goal? From what I understand about the Bodhisattva is that what they teach in the Mahayana tradition is that the goal is to learn as much as you can, get as close to enlightenment as possible, but not actually attain enlightenment and actually come back into the world and help as many people to attain enlightenment as possible. But that's not what the Buddha actually taught. So it's not part of the Theravada tradition because you wouldn't be able to help somebody attain enlightenment if you haven't attained enlightenment yourself. It's like trying to teach someone to drive a car but you've never driven a car yourself. You wouldn't be able to teach someone to drive a car if you've never driven a car. So the idea that somebody is going to help others attain enlightenment, even though they haven't attained enlightenment themselves, it's, it's not possible. So in the Theravada tradition, the way that the Buddha taught is it's your own individual practice. You're on your own journey. Your goal isn't to spread the teachings throughout the world. Your goal isn't to necessarily help other people and convince other people to practice these teachings. It's all about your own individual practice, learning and practicing, improving the condition of your own mind. Sure, if somebody asks for some help, there's no reason why you wouldn't be able to help them, but you don't try to force that on people. But the ultimate goal is for you to attain enlightenment in this life so that then you're no longer reborn into a future birth. So the idea of the bodhisattva path or the bodhisattva vows, they're not part of the Theravada tradition. That's something that came after the death of the Buddha. Thank you, David. Those are all the questions at this time. Okay, so let's go into the misunderstandings that you're gonna see. Remember, primarily these are from the Theravada tradition, but I've got some others in here as well that you're gonna see because as you enter into various communities, you're going to see certain things going on. And you might be curious, based on everything I've been teaching you the last six or seven months, and some of you guys have been studying with me longer than that, you might be curious, like, well, David taught us there's no rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship in the Theravada Buddhist tradition. And the Buddha didn't teach rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. Well, when I went to the temple, the first thing I saw was rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. Why is that? So... Why is because of the impermanence and people integrating things that weren't necessarily taught by the Buddha. But let me explain to you some of those things that you're going to see and why I'm saying that they're misunderstandings. This first one is called in Thai, we call it Guat Nam. This is a very common one. In English, I translate that to pouring water ceremony. The belief is, is that as you practice generosity and you make offerings to create merit. And if you remember back to chapter 10, when we talked about merit, merit is a way to make offerings of your time, effort, energy, and resources 
to teachers and ordained practitioners and temples as a way to help share time, effort, energy, and resources to be able to share the teachings with others. And this is a way for you to train the mind to let go, practicing generosity, and it helps to train your mind to let go of craving, desire, attachment. Well, the belief in this Guatnam is, is that after you make an offering, they will have you take this little urn of water and pour it very slowly as the monks are chanting. And they believe that any merit that you've accumulated or any wholesome results, any wholesome karma that you've generated by your offering is then transferred to your dead relatives. This is impossible. The Buddha taught in his own words that beings are the owners of their gamma, heirs of their gamma, the originators of their gamma. We have our gamma and it belongs to us. We can't transfer that to somebody else. And if you understand the practice of generosity and you understand that the whole goal of practicing generosity is to eliminate craving, desire, attachment from the mind so that the mind doesn't hold on and it trains it to let go. That's the real benefit in actually producing merit. Sure, you're sharing time, effort, energy, and resources to share the Buddhist teachings, but what you're really getting out of this whole exchange is you're getting to eliminate craving, desire, attachment in the mind, the whole cause of discontentedness. And you can't transfer that benefit to a person or to a being or to some dead being. So this little ceremony is probably something from a folk tradition or a Hindu practice that was kind of brought in as part of what the Thais now do. So you might see this as part of any Buddhist community that you go into. This next one, the Thais call it Namon, or I might call this one, or you might think of it as blessed water. What this one is, is that there's typically during a certain event that there's a bowl of water and there's a candle over top of the bowl of water and there's this string that's connecting all the ordained practitioners and the household practitioners together. And at some point, the monks are going to light this candle and drip wax into the water as they're chanting. And then after this little ceremony is done, they will take what looks like the end of a broom, but it's really not. It's just kind of gathered like the end of a broom. And they will dip it in the water and they will spread it amongst all the people that are part of the event. And they're spreading this water that they now consider blessed water out over all the people. And the people believe that this is purifying them, that this water is somehow beneficial to them. But the Buddha actually says in his own words, if you look in the books that I produce that are the words of the Buddha in volume 12, that book is titled Lowly Art. There's teachings in there from the Pali Canon where the Buddha talks about blessed water or holy water. And he talks about that he doesn't create this. It's not something that's part of his practice. And he prohibits his monks from doing this, that it is essentially wrong view to think that you could somehow transform water to be a purified holy water and then by spreading it over people, it's somehow going to improve the individual. Because if you understand the number one problem in the unenlightened mind is this unknowing of true reality or this ignorance, 
And the antidote to that is wisdom, understanding the teachings, reflecting on them and practicing them. You can then gain this wisdom. So there's no water that you can sprinkle on somebody to help them accumulate wisdom. It's not possible. But people do it. And again, it's probably part of folk tradition or Hindu practices that were kind of brought in or just integrated into Buddhism when people started practicing Buddhism. But you can see in the Buddha's words himself from the original source, the Pali Canon, where he talks about not making blessed water or holy water. He talks about not doing ceremonies to bless construction sites or to bless houses. But these are all things that actually occur today that you will see ordained practitioners going into homes to bless homes or bless construction sites. And this is just because over 2,500 years, people have gotten further and further and further away from what the Buddha's teachings actually are. Our goal in this practice is not to go out and change everybody else and try to convince all these ordained practitioners that they should stop doing this because that's their practice. That's what they're doing and that's their life. But I share these teachings and others with you that I'm going to share today so that you understand if you see these things going on that they're not part of the Buddhist teachings and there's nothing about this pouring of water in a Guatnam ceremony that will transfer your merit to somebody else. There's nothing about this water being sprinkled on you that is going to help you get to enlightenment. And likewise, this third one, this sacred thread, or the Thais call it Sai Sin. When you go and you visit ordained practitioners, they will sometimes tie a little string on your wrist. And they will sometimes do a little bit of chanting. And some people will take swipes. They'll do like three swipes out and three swipes in, and then they'll kind of tie it on your wrist. And they're thinking that they're drawing out any kind of evil spirits or any bad things in there. And they're kind of tying this on. And there's different beliefs about what the string represents. But there's, you know, some kind of sacredness about this thread. But if you understand, again, that the problem with the unenlightened mind is that it has craving, anger, and ignorance or unknowing of true reality. It has these 10 fetters, these 10 pollutions of mind that the Buddha taught to eradicate through training the mind on the Eightfold Path. If you understand this and you deeply get into what the Buddha actually taught, then you can understand that tying a string around your wrist isn't going to change anything about the condition of your mind. If an ordained practitioner ties a string around your wrist, or I tie a string around your wrist, or your mother ties a string around your wrist, it's just a piece of string. There's nothing about that string that's going to miraculously produce wisdom in the mind and help you make better decisions in the world. So let me pause here and see if you guys have any questions about these three. With a thread, it seems a bit similar to the symbols we were studying last week. Would you say that the thread can be useful and perhaps serving as a reminder, though outside of that purpose, it really has no value to us? Yeah, if you'd like to put a, a piece of string on your wrist to remind you to meditate each day, go for it. But the real benefit is that you meditate each day. Or if you tie a string around your wrist to remind you to practice right speech, yeah, go for it. But the real benefit is that you're practicing right speech. It's not the actual string itself.
That's all that we have for now, David. Okay. So let's go into the next three. The next one, I put a section in the book about ordained practitioners, which we refer to as bhikkhus or bhikkhunis, or uh, some people will call them monks and they'll call them nuns using some other language from some other tradition. But the Buddha called them bhikkhus and bhikkhunis. The bhikkhus are the male ordained practitioners and the bhikkhunis are the female ordained practitioners. The ordained practitioners have decided to leave the household life and go on this journey in this womb of the temple where they no longer work, they no longer have a job. If they have children or parents or wives or husbands, they basically leave all of that household life behind and enter into homelessness where all they have is essentially two robes and a bowl. That's really all they have. And this environment is more conducive to producing enlightenment, but it's not guaranteed. And not everybody has to become ordained in order to attain enlightenment. But by leaving behind household life, it creates less opportunity for the mind to grab onto things and hold on to things with craving, desire, attachment. Ordained practitioners are challenged with all the same things that household practitioners are challenged with, except that they don't have a job. Their whole lifestyle becomes focusing on learning and practicing these teachings. They live at a monastery typically, and they will dedicate their life to focusing on learning and practicing these teachings. But they can go in and out of that ordained life as they choose. Some people ordain for a few weeks, a few months, a few years, and then unordain. It's not a lifetime ordination. Some people will ordain for four or five, six years, go into the household life, go back into becoming ordained again. You can go in and out like this. But what you'll oftentimes see if you interact with ordained practitioners is if you lie to them and show them respect, they actually won't lie back to you. And that's why I included this in there to kind of bring this to your attention and also to help ordained practitioners too. Because when I've spoken with ordained practitioners and asked them why they don't show respect back to household practitioners when household practitioners why them, the response that I typically get is that they say that they're following more precepts than household practitioners, so therefore they don't have to show respect to the household practitioners. Some ordained practitioners are being taught that they are higher in society than household practitioners. Therefore, they don't have to show respect to household practitioners. But once again, this is a complete misunderstanding based on what the Buddha actually taught. The Buddha taught that ordained practitioners are essentially at the lowest part of society. That's why he went from being a prince in a royal palace to being homeless and walking down the street in rags and allowing people to offer him food. Because by doing so, it helped to eliminate arrogance and pride, conceit out of the mind by putting himself at the lowest position in society and being very humble. By putting ordained practitioners up high and then teaching them that they don't have to respect household practitioners, this can actually produce conceit or arrogance or ego in the mind of an ordained practitioner and actually inhibit them from attaining enlightenment. But you should understand that this practice is about your practice. So if you're around ordained practitioners, you should show respect to them. You should show gratitude and appreciation. But 
don't expect that they're going to show respect back to you. And if they don't show respect back to you, that's okay. That's their practice. That's them practicing and it's their life practice. But from your perspective, it's important that you show respect to all people, to all beings, that you're polite, kind, friendly, and respectful, looking at all beings equally. If I was ordained as a ordained practitioner, I would show an enormous amount of respect to household practitioners because the only reason why I would get a chance to become ordained and sustain my life is because of the household practitioners. It's the household practitioners that provide donations of time, effort, energy, and resources to provide ordained practitioners a place to live, provides them clothing, provides them food and shelter and water, medical care. So if I was ordained and I was around household practitioners, I would show respect and why to everybody. And over the last few years, I've transitioned my life away from household life. Yes, I do live in a house and I do have a family, but all the donations that you guys send to me, that's what I use to buy food or to buy a little bit of clothing or to buy a drink or something like this. So I'm living off of the generosity of the students who learn with me. And I have an enormous amount of respect and gratitude. Every single time somebody makes a donation to me, I always send them a thank you and show my appreciation. Because I remember when I was in the business world, I remember waking up early, getting ready for work, going to work, going through all of that effort to make money and to be able to sustain a household. And I know the hard work that goes into acquiring any kind of time, effort, energy, or resources. And when someone chooses to share that with me out of their generosity for the generosity that I'm practicing to share the teachings with you, I'm enormously grateful. I'm enormously respecting the fact that someone has made an offering to me. And I would encourage ordained practitioners to do the same is even if you've been taught by your leader to not show respect to household practitioners, then you don't have to necessarily follow that because it can produce arrogance and pride and ego in your mind inhibiting you from getting to enlightenment. Instead, why the household practitioners show gratitude, show respect, tell them that you're thankful for this environment, this womb, this mother's womb that their household practitioners are creating for you to live within so that you can focus on your own practice of learning and meditating and developing your life practice to get more and more enlightened. And the way that us teachers should show respect and gratitude is not just through our gestures of whying, but through us developing our practice deeper and deeper and deeper and then offer that back to our students by way of teachings. That's the way that we show respect to our students, the ones who are supporting us. They might be supporting us with generous offerings, but the way that we support them is through making sure that we deliver high quality teachings that's going to benefit their life. So as you guys all enter into environments where there are ordained practitioners, be sure to show your respect and gratitude, but just as part of craving, desire, attachment, wants, expectations, don't have any expectation that other people are going to respect and show respect to you because they might have been taught in a different way. So just know that that's the case. And even though there's number five and six here, 
I would like to go forward, James, in the slides and share with you a little bit of why I'm sharing what I'm sharing, because based on the Buddha's words, there's these words and others that he shared talking about how this holy life or this life of moving to enlightenment, it isn't about gain, honor, and praise and being admired by others. So here's some words from the Buddha. He says, monks, gain, honor, and praise, I say, are an obstacle even for a monk who is an arahant, one with taints destroyed. Taints destroyed are the fetters or the pollution of the mind. An arahant is somebody who's enlightened. So here the Buddha is saying, gain honor and praise, I say, are an obstacle, even for a monk who is enlightened, one who has eliminated the ten fetters or these ten pollutions of mind. When this was said, the venerable Ananda, who is one of the Buddha's closest students, asked the master teacher Gotama, why, venerable sir, are gain, honor, and praise an obstacle even for a monk with taints destroyed? You know, so even for a monk who's enlightened, why is gain, honor, and praise an obstacle? Then the Buddha replies, I do not say, Ananda, that gain, honor, and praise are an obstacle to his unshakable liberation of mind. So unshakable liberation of mind is once you actually attain enlightenment, we call that liberation or enlightenment because the mind is now free of discontentedness. It's free of strong feelings. That's liberation. The mind is unshakable. Nobody and nothing can shake up your mind once the mind's enlightened. So the Buddha is not saying that gain, honor, and praise is an obstacle to someone who's already enlightened. But I say they are an obstacle to his attainment of right? So to actually attain enlightenment, if somebody is absorbed in this gain, honor, and praise, then they're not going to actually be able to attain enlightenment. Those peaceful dwellings in this very life, which are achievable by one who resides diligent, dedicated, and determined. So dreadful, Ananda, are gain, honor, and praise, so bitter, vile, obstructive to the achieving the unsurpassed security from bondage. Once again, that's enlightenment. So he's saying this gain, honor, and praise is just horrible if you allow it to obsess the mind, which is what we're going to get to next. Therefore, Ananda, you should train yourselves thus. We will abandon the arisen gain, honor, and praise, and we will not let the arisen gain, honor, and praise persist obsessing our mind. Thus should you train yourselves. So for you as a practitioner, if somebody is telling you all these pleasant things and they just are so appreciative of your uh, life or things that you've done or your wisdom or things that you're doing, they're sharing all this admiration for you. What the Buddha is saying is don't allow that to obsess your mind, creating this excitement, this thrill, this uh, euphoric feeling in the mind because that is the mind obsessing over this admiration. And the problem is, is that if you allow your mind to enjoy those pleasant feelings when somebody's laying on the admiration, then when someone doesn't do that, then you're going to experience sadness or frustration or anger. So the goal of the Buddha is to teach you to train the mind to be in the middle 
where it's unaffected with these pleasant feelings of impermanent conditions. And also it's not affected by these painful feelings of sadness, anger, frustration. So if you're feeling any kind of admiration or honor or praise coming your way, sure, thank the person, be appreciative, but don't allow it to affect your mind and allow your mind to obsess over it. And then here's another passage from the Buddha that I included in this part of the book where he talks about the spiritual life is not lived for the sake of deceiving people. He says, monks, this spiritual life is not lived for the sake of deceiving people in persuading them, nor for the benefit of gain, honor, and praise, nor for the benefit of winning in debates, nor with the thought, let the people know me thus, but rather the spiritual life is lived for the sake of restraint, abandoning, freedom from strong feelings, and elimination. What he's talking about there is elimination of discontentedness. So if you're around people who aren't showing you respect, not that you should be looking for it, not that you should be expecting it, but if you're lying to an ordained practitioner and they're not interested in showing some kind of respect back to you, then perhaps those might not be the best people for you to learn from. You have to see because if someone is looking for gain and honor and praise and they look at themselves as being above you, then they themselves have not yet deeply soaked these teachings into the mind to a point where they've eliminated conceit or arrogance or pride. And what you would like to do is learn from somebody who no longer has this arrogance or pride or this ego because that's somebody who's either close to enlightenment or who is enlightened. So the Buddha here is sharing essentially that we should be humble and not have this interest in let the people know me thus. Look how much I know about the Buddhist teachings. Let me convince everybody how wise I am. This isn't what the Buddha taught. Instead, he taught this restraint, pulling the mind back, abandoning craving, anger, ignorance, so that you can get to this freedom of the strong feelings and elimination of discontentedness. Going back to number five and six, there's oftentimes chanting and mantras in different Buddhist traditions. In the Theravada tradition, we have chanting in all the other traditions. There's typically some kind of chanting or mantras, but it's important that you understand that chanting and mantras, they're not prayers. While somebody might explain it to you that way, and they might tell you to chant certain chants or mantras repeatedly over and over and over again, and this is gonna create some beneficial result, this isn't what the Buddha actually taught during his lifetime. You can't pray to the Buddha and ask for something beneficial. The Buddha lived, he taught, and he died, no longer coming back. He left his teachings in order to allow people to train their mind and get to enlightenment. But chanting itself or mantras themselves, there's no mystical, magical, superstitious powers that any kind of chanting or mantras is going to produce. The Buddha never taught that there's a special chant to get to enlightenment, or there's a special mantra to eliminate unwholesome karma or there's a special mantra to have good luck, 
or there's a special mantra to have a long life, or there's a special chance or mantra to become wealthy. This isn't what the Buddha actually taught, but you'll see these kind of things in the world today because people are misunderstanding what chanting and mantras are all about. What chanting is for is over the course of many centuries, the Buddhist teachings have lived orally and they use chanting to memorize the teachings and hand them down from person to person to person. So during the lifetime of the Buddha, nothing was written down. Everything was taught orally. And the only way that they remembered the teachings was to recite them. And they recited them word for word for word exactly the way that the Buddha taught them. And what that's turned into is people think that by reciting the teachings or chanting, that that's going to produce some beneficial result. But it doesn't. It might produce more clarity of mind. It might produce some more awareness of mind. It might calm the mind and ease it into meditation, helping you to get better results from your meditation. But it's the actual meditation that's producing the results. But you don't have to actually chant and do mantras in order to attain enlightenment. There's people who are enlightened who don't chant and who don't do mantras. And if these chanting and mantras are the truth, if, for example, you were in a community and they said, oh, you should chant this mantra because if you do, you'll get a long life. Okay, well, if that's the case, look around the community. Do you see anybody who's 120, 150, 200 years old? Because if this special chant or mantra produces an extra long life, then you should see a whole bunch of 150-year-old people sitting around because they chanted these chants and they got an extra long life. But you're not going to see that because it's not the truth. So I teach chanting as part of the teachings that I share, but I teach it as a way to ease the mind into meditation and ease it out of meditation. But the real goal is to actually train the mind through the Eightfold Path. And there's no part of the Eightfold Path that includes chanting or mantras. This is a misunderstanding that because people have recited the teachings for so long to memorize them and hand them down from generation to generation, somewhere along the line, people just slowly started believing that these chants and mantras were somehow beneficial. Perhaps somebody went to a temple one day, did a chant, and then they won the lottery, or they got a new job, or you know something else happened, and they're like, oh, that was because of the chant. No, it wasn't because of the chant. You got that new job because you worked really hard, you applied effort, you learned, you did a good job at your previous jobs, you submitted a good resume, you did a good interview. That's the reason why you got the job, not because of the chant. It's because of the wholesome decisions that you made. So you'll see these things as part of some communities. And then the sixth one is you'll oftentimes see Buddha statues. And these are really beautiful pieces of artwork. And they can be great to remind you to practice the teachings. But there's no part of the Buddhist teachings where he taught people to make statues of him. In fact, during his lifetime, there were no statues of him. And there were plenty of enlightened people that existed during his lifetime because they learned and practiced the teachings. Somewhere along the lines, the people who were learning and practicing Buddhist teachings started traveling into Greece. This is what the historians will share. 
they started traveling into Greece. And Greek people were making statues of their various gods that they believed in. And Buddhist people, two, three, five hundred years after the death of the Buddha, were like, oh, well, maybe we should start making statues of the Buddha. So if you look at some of the very early statues of the Buddha, they look very Greek. They look like they've been influenced by Greek artwork and Greek artists. But there's many different types of Buddhist statues all over the world. And if you look at the different statues, what you'll see is that Thai people make statues that look very Thai. Chinese people make statues that look very Chinese. Japanese people make statues that look very Japanese and so forth and so on. Essentially, people are wanting the Buddha to look like them and look like their culture. This is the craving, desire, attachment. The mind is holding on and creating this image or this statue of the Buddha based on their own cultural understanding, their own cultural cues, and wanting the Buddha to look a certain way. But in reality, the Buddha doesn't really look like any of those statues that I've ever seen. All the different statues that I've seen don't even really kind of look human. This picture that I'm showing now, this is a piece of artwork that was commissioned here in Thailand based on the description of the Buddha in the Pali Canon. In the original source text, they wrote down what he actually looked like. And there was an artist that was commissioned to look at that text and create a image that would represent the Buddha. And from everything that I know, this image looks like an individual that would come from Nepal or northeastern India, even though it was created by a Thai person. He looks like a human being rather than some of the other statues that you see. So these statues that are created, this is typically from craving desire attachment, the mind wanting the Buddha to be like their culture and wanting some image to represent the Buddha. And then what happens is people start misunderstanding what these artworks are really meant to be for. You can talk to some people that believe the spirit of the Buddha is in these statues. And you can see people that will kneel and they will pray to these statues, asking the Buddha to come help them. But this isn't part of the Buddhist teachings. It's part of wrong view. And if you understand what right view is as part of the Eightfold Path, you wouldn't actually be able to attain enlightenment if you have wrong view. And if somebody's praying to the Buddha statues, we're not looking down on them. We're not thinking they're a bad person or they've done anything wrong. They just haven't been exposed to what the true teachings are of the Buddha and their misunderstanding what the true teachings are that lead to enlightenment. So when you go into various communities, if you see Buddhist statues and things like this, you might see people that are praying or bowing to statues and thinking there's going to be some beneficial result because of that. But just know what the true teachings are, and that's not part of what the Buddha taught. Whether you decide to have a statue or not have a statue is your own personal decision. But if you do have one, understand that it's a piece of artwork, that it's not the actual Buddha himself. And understand that the spirit of the Buddha is not in that statue, and you can't pray to that statue in order to get some beneficial outcome. That's not possible. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have about these. Hi, Teacher David. 
So I uh, wanted to ask about chanting and the qualities of why uh, someone chooses to chant versus someone choosing not to chant. Um, I've just heard of, uh, across many different cultures, um, chanting uh, being something that's a very effective um, practice and um, especially repetition in chanting. Uh, I noticed that when we chant, there is a, um, a middle chant which has a repetition kind of a factor there. So if you can speak about why you chose to teach us the chanting, why you include that in our meditations, and perhaps why we may choose to do so in our own meditations. Sure. So the ultimate goal on this path to enlightenment is to eradicate those three poisons, the craving, anger, and ignorance, or unknowing a true reality. And these are broken down into more detail in the 10 fetters, which are the 10 defilements or taints or pollutions of mind. This is things like personal existence view, wrong grasp of behavior and observances, which is thinking that rites, rituals, and ceremonies are going to lead to enlightenment. These are things like doubt, central desire, ill will, desire for form to be reborn into a form realm or desire for formless. This is conceit, restlessness of mind, and ignorance or unknowing of true reality. All of these, there's a lot of details about what these 10 fetters are and how to actually eradicate them from the mind. But ultimately, where this entire path leads to when you eliminate all the pollution out of the mind is it leads to a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy where it no longer experiences any discontentedness whatsoever. The mind is going to have focus. It's going to have concentration. It's going to have clarity. And you're going to have this memorization where you can memorize things and recall them for very long periods of time. So what the mind is working towards is coming to the middle where the mind is optimized and it's able to have this deep clarity and deep concentration, which benefits you in daily life, in your personal and professional relationships. And the way that you do that is through training the mind, not through rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. You train the mind and through training the mind, you get to this peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy. Just chanting something over and over and over and over and over again isn't going to give you the wisdom that you need in order to bring the mind to the middle and produce this clarity, this concentration, this focus that the mind is performing optimally. The reason why I do chanting is as a way to start to develop awareness of mind prior to meditation because the Buddha talked about setting up mindfulness or awareness of mind prior to meditation. So when you I chant, it helps me to start getting aware of the mind. Also, in learning the chants, all the time that I took to learn the chants, it helped me to develop concentration and clarity of mind and build my memory. So if you never use the mind in trying to build the memorization, it won't actually develop memorization. So it's like a muscle. You have to work out that muscle in order for it to get strong. So by learning the chance, not only do you start gaining this awareness of mind prior to meditation, but you gain this memorization and, and you're kind of exercising the mind to build this memorization. Then as part of chanting that I teach 
you start becoming aware of the breath and you start getting more concentrated prior to meditation. So it kind of eases the mind into meditation. But the real benefits is actually in the meditation itself. And then once you meditate, then the chanting kind of helps ease the mind out of meditation. So there's kind of like this little buffer zone where you're focusing on chanting, you're becoming aware of the mind, aware of the breath, you're developing concentration and memorization. Then you go into your meditation session, deeply train the mind in meditation, and then kind of use the chanting to kind of ease the mind back out of meditation and go about your day. So this is how I use chanting. It's to get more benefit out of the meditation itself. But there's actually meditation sessions that I do where I don't chant. So like last night, my son slept in my room with me and he went to sleep at eight o'clock and I didn't go to sleep until much later. So I didn't do any chanting prior to meditation. I just went right into meditation and it was fine. You know, got plenty of benefit out of the meditation. So chanting can be helpful to ease the mind into meditation and cultivate some of the qualities of mind that you're going to need in meditation, but it's not a requirement to do. There's nothing superstitious or inherently beneficial about the meditation that's going to propel you to enlightenment beyond just meditating by itself. So that's why when I teach chanting, I teach it and I share it with people. And I say, if this works for you, if it's something that you enjoy and that you benefit from, use it. If you don't benefit from it and you don't enjoy it, then don't use it. But do something to develop awareness of mind and ease the mind into meditation so that you'll get more benefit out of it. And for some people, it might be a little bit of stretching or yoga. It might be some people like to pray if they're into prayer. Not that the Buddha taught those things, but if that's something that you're into and you'd like to use that, you can. The real benefit here is getting into your meditation session and really soaking into the training and understanding what that's all about. But this repetitive nature of just saying words over and over and over and over and over and over and over again isn't actually producing wisdom that helps you to get to that peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. It's just chanting. It's just reciting something. So, David, going back to the Buddhist words that you shared, if we experience gain, honor, and praise, and we feel positive emotions from that, is that a reminder that we still have ego? Um, It could be. There's definitely still craving, desire, attachment there. If you're experiencing pleasant feelings as a result of somebody sharing something positive with you, like admiration, it means that you really want that, right? So it's not that you're bad. It's not that you've done anything wrong. It's just how the unenlightened mind is conditioned. It's conditioned to base its inner feelings on some impermanent condition. So if you hear positive, encouraging words, the mind will feel pleasant feelings, happiness, excitement, elation. If the mind hears negative words, it will typically feel sadness, anger, frustration, annoyance. And this is the whole problem. And the challenge is, is early on the path, you have to be able to see that by allowing your mind to experience these conditioned feelings, And what conditioned feeling is, is it's a feeling that's based on some impermanent condition, 
some temporary condition is creating these pleasant feelings inside. If you allow the mind to do that, then it's going to also experience these painful feelings when those conditions don't exist. So if you find pleasure when somebody is admiring you, then when somebody is not admiring you and speaking negatively, you're going to feel painful feelings. So to get to this enlightened mental state, you hear the pleasant things, you hear the praise, the admiration, you might smile, you might say thank you, you might say you're so kind, thank you for your warm words or whatever you say to them. But inside, you have to train the mind to not be swayed or experience these pleasant feelings arise just because somebody said something respectful or admirable to you. Because if you allow the mind to do that and you don't cut that off and let it go, then you're going to experience these painful feelings. So it could be that there's ego there, James, but not necessarily. There's definitely craving, desire, attachment. The mind shouldn't crave or want to hear positive things. It's nice when people say and show their appreciation and gratitude to you. It's, it's a really nice thing. You, you would like to be around people that are sharing those kind of things. You can't stop somebody from sharing praise or admiration with you that they really admire the things that you're doing. But you can control your mind to not allow it to experience these highs or these pleasant feelings every time somebody says something pleasant because then your mind's going to crave it and want it and desire it. And when it's not there, that's when it's going to swing to the other side and experience these painful feelings. And that's what you're trying to avoid by moving the mind to enlightenment is stop basing your inner feelings on these temporary and permanent conditions that exist in the world. With certain relationships, such as perhaps a significant other or an employer, would you say it's appropriate to seek out situations in which those people do praise us or in some way, I think that people tend to tend to look for that. They want to feel appreciated by people in these relationships. Do you feel that that's appropriate on this path or is that too perhaps an impediment? You shouldn't be seeking praise, right? But also at the same time, if there's someone who's constantly negative and degrading or disparaging you, you're not interested in being around that either. So if you take the Buddhist teachings about developing wholesome relationships, he talks about having wholesome friends and wholesome comrades, wholesome companions, and that that is the entire part of the holy life. Because if you have wholesome relationships around you, you're going to have a tendency to make wholesome decisions. Where if you have negativity and people disparaging you and putting you down all the time, this is going to take away from your brightness. And not that you would like to judge those people or look at them as being bad. You just choose not to be around them and you can just move on with your life. But if you have a life partner and you're always wanting them to share some kind of positive words with you, there's never going to be enough of those words because the craving is going to just want more and more and more and more. So if you don't have any expectations with a partner, for example, that they should be telling you positive things all the time, then when they do choose to share something positive with you, if you're not expecting it, it's like, oh, wow, that's very nice. Thank you so much. I appreciate your kind words. 
But now if you start expecting it and wanting it and seeking it and craving it, that's where the problem comes in because the mind's going to want it when it's not there. And the mind's relying on those positive comments to create these inner feelings. Whereas if you're confident in your own skin, then you don't require all of this external stuff and these positive words in order to maintain your contentedness. You can be content and peaceful if somebody talks kind with you or not. So if you hear a, a nice positive words from your partner, okay, that's great, that's fine. I'm peaceful and content. But if they don't share anything, that's fine too. I'm peaceful and content. I'm not basing my inner feelings on what this other person's sharing with me because that's an impermanent condition that's not always going to be there. Also, looking at the Buddhist words, there was the phrase, let the people know me thus, as we consider ourselves on this path. And it seems like oftentimes we're on this path and we're interested in it, and then we still have ego, and it suddenly becomes incorporated in that ego. And that seems to me where that comes in. And I was wondering if you have any advice as we are on this path to avoid that pitfall of allowing this whole practice to just become a part of our ego. Yeah, as you develop on this path, you're going to be gaining wisdom that the ordinary person doesn't have. You're going to understand many things in the world, why they're happening, why things are happening in your life and other people's lives. You're going to have wisdom that the ordinary person just doesn't have. And this takes an extra responsibility to be humble as a result of that. Because if you went around boasting about all the things you know, the Buddha's words, you know, let the people know me thus, then there's going to be conceit there. That's ego. And you're not going to be able to get to enlightenment. And people don't like being around somebody with arrogance and pride or ego. And it's going to strain your personal and professional relationships. So while you might know what's going on and you might have wisdom beyond what the ordinary person has, it's going to require an extra amount of humbleness for you to either temper that or gradually share with people things that will be able to help them while you're maintaining your humbleness. And this is where you really need to improve your practice more and more of finding that middle where you can share if somebody's open to it and you can help them a little bit, but at the same time, don't allow it to come out as being arrogant or prideful. And this is the real balance that you have to strike and find that middle. Looking at the misunderstandings of the Buddhist teachings that you shared, for example, with chanting, it seems that a theme is that there are no shortcuts on this path. Would you say that that's an important thing to remember? Absolutely, right? So that's one of the things that the human mind is typically looking for is what's the fastest way, right? Like the lesser vehicle, greater vehicle, lightning fast vehicle, you know, to me, the Buddha taught one way to attain enlightenment, the Eightfold Path, and all the other teachings that plug into it. It's not fast. If somebody's trying to get to enlightenment fast or quickly, they're misunderstanding what enlightenment's all about. It's, it's a gradual process. It's not a light switch that you turn on or off. It's a gradual training, gradual progress. The Buddha himself talks about this in his teachings. There are no shortcuts. You can't just light a candle, do a mantra, do that same mantra repeatedly for five or 10 years, and you're going to attain enlightenment. That's not how it, 
any of this works or any kind of rites, rituals, ceremonies, or worship because all of those things were happening during the lifetime of the Buddha. And when he saw that they were going on, what he taught was just the opposite. And even to get into that first stage of enlightenment as a stream enterer, one of the fetters or one of the pollution of mind that you have to eliminate is wrong grasp of behaviors and observances. And what he teaches on this is rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship aren't leading to enlightenment. And if people think that they are, then they're still practicing wrong view. They haven't yet understood the Four Noble Truths, which is the very first introductory teaching to this path. So if somebody's looking at superstition or auspicious things or doing all these magical, mystical things, and they think that's what's going to lead to enlightenment, they haven't actually understood the very, 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 very first, most crucial, most foundational teaching of the Buddhas, which is the Four Noble Truths. Thank you, David. That's all we have for now. All right. So let's go to the last three that I had planned to share with you guys today which the first one, or it's listed as number seven here, but it's the first one on this slide, is some communities think of Gautama Buddha as a god, an avatar, or a lord. The Buddha never talked about himself as being a god, an avatar, or a lord. But even though he never talked about this, there's people today who will refer to him as Lord Buddha, or Lord Gautama Buddha, or some people think of him as a god, or an avatar. The Buddha was a human being. He was a human being who trained his mind deeply on his own independent journey and through discovering the teachings on his own. He then dedicated the rest of his life to sharing those teachings. He taught for 45 years. Countless people attained enlightenment during his life. And then once he died, his teachings remained in the world and more people attain enlightenment after his death. Countless people have attained enlightenment. If we refer to Gautama Buddha as a god, an avatar, or a lord, this is misunderstanding what he actually was and what he said he was. He just said he was a human being. He was awakened. He was enlightened. When we think of the word lord, the way that lord is defined in the dictionary is someone or something having power, authority or influence, a master or ruler. The Buddha never referred to himself in that way or, or taught that he had any kind of power, authority, influence. He didn't talk as he was a ruler of anybody. He stepped down from being the royal family destined to be the king to be this teacher. A lord is also defined as you know an act of being superior or domineering towards others. The Buddha didn't teach that. He taught to be humble and peaceful with people. So if we use the words that the Buddha was a lord or a god or an avatar, and we use this misunderstanding in the world, then there's a whole enormous group of people out there that will never be able to get access to the Buddhist teachings because they're taught that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only Lord and Savior. So if we refer to the Buddha as Lord Buddha, then we're turning away over a billion people who will never actually learn the Buddhist teachings because they're taught that Jesus is the only Lord and that they shouldn't worship any false gods or false 
lords or false saviors. So it's important that we make sure that we understand for our own practice that the Buddha was a human being, he was a teacher, he shared teachings to help people on this path to enlightenment. But then if we communicate with others, ensuring that we're using the proper language, that the Buddha was a teacher or a master teacher, you can use these kind of words, that will help other people to understand what the Buddha actually is, that he's not a god, an avatar, or a lord. There's some people that will use the word blessings as it relates to the Buddhist teachings. You might hear people say, may the Buddha bless you, or may the triple gem bless you. The triple gem is the Buddha, the teachings, and the community. In Pali, we say Buddha Dhamma Sangha. But people using this word blessings, they're essentially borrowing from other traditions and misunderstanding what this word blessing actually means. If you look up the word blessing, what it means is God's favor and protection, a prayer asking God's favor or protection. So if somebody says, may the Buddha bless you, the Buddha doesn't bless people. He lived, he taught, he died, he's no longer coming back. He isn't able to bless people. It's through our own learning, our own reflection, our own practice that we gain this wisdom moving the mind through training the mind to this peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy. There's nothing about the Buddhist teachings that there's a blessing or the Buddha blessing you or you blessing others. But you'll see people use this in social media. You'll see people use this in daily life. And again, we're not looking down on people. We're not thinking they're bad. It's just that they haven't been exposed to what the Buddha actually taught. And they might be hearing people say the word blessing, and they're just looking for something polite and kind to say to people. And they just kind of borrow from other traditions. So that's why, you know, people are looking at the Buddha in one way or another, rather than looking at what he actually really taught and that this word blessing doesn't relate to his teachings in any way whatsoever. And then lastly, there's certain traditions and certain communities that say that if you attain enlightenment, you will be a Buddha. Or they say attaining enlightenment is to attain Buddhahood. Or they'll say that you have Buddha nature. And by you attaining enlightenment, you will realize this Buddha nature. But this isn't what the Buddha actually taught. What a Buddha is, is a Buddha is very rare, very unique in the world. The last Buddha that the world is currently aware of existed over 2,500 years ago, Gautama Buddha, or the Buddha. And as far as the world currently understands, there hasn't been a Buddha since his lifetime. A Buddha is someone who goes out on an independent journey to discover the truth and through their own efforts, they come to understand and realize the path to enlightenment. They can figure out what it takes to create this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy on their own without any help from any teachers. Then they will dedicate the rest of their life from the time of their enlightenment for the rest of their life until they die to sharing the teachings to help countless people attain enlightenment during their lifetime. The Buddha did that for 45 years. Then they will leave the teachings in a condition that after their death, countless more people will attain enlightenment. 
having a Buddha in the world is one of the best things that can occur because the wisdom of a Buddha is so deep and so profound that countless people can attain enlightenment during the lifetime of a Buddha. And this Buddha, Gautama Buddha, did amazing things over the 45 years of his teaching to ensure that these teachings are in the world and we're able to benefit countless people. It doesn't matter what your path to enlightenment is, attaining enlightenment is amazing and you'll be able to experience that amazing mental state. But no matter what you do in this life and no matter how much benefit you bring to the world, it won't be the same as what a Buddha does. So if somebody says that you are going to be a Buddha when you attain enlightenment, you're not doing what a Buddha actually does, which is go out on their own, attain enlightenment on their own, dedicate the remaining part of their life to sharing teachings to help countless people attain enlightenment and then leave the teachings in a condition that countless more people can attain enlightenment. This is a miraculous feat to be able to do this as a human being. Attaining enlightenment is nothing to be sad about. You will absolutely be very pleased with attaining the mental state of enlightenment, but it's not that you will be a Buddha. You will be an enlightened being at that point. And by that point, you won't be interested in telling people that you are enlightened because you will have eliminated any kind of ego or arrogance or pride. An enlightened being doesn't have arrogance or pride or any kind of ego associated with attaining enlightenment. So if we share that people who attain enlightenment are a Buddha or they've attained Buddhahood or that they have Buddha nature, this is again a misunderstanding of what the Buddha actually taught. In the book, you'll see the words of the Buddha that I shared where he talked about how rare it is for a Buddha to exist in the world. It's extremely, extremely rare. And while it would be wonderful for each and every one of us to attain enlightenment, you won't be a Buddha once you attain enlightenment. And it's really important to understand what a Buddha is and what a Buddha isn't. Because if someone went around thinking that they're a Buddha, then this is almost as a disrespect to the actual Buddha himself but it's just that they really don't understand what a Buddha truly is. So while it would be wonderful for everyone to attain enlightenment, just know that you won't be a Buddha once you attain enlightenment. So these are all the misunderstandings that I felt were the primary ones for you to understand. There's many more that are out there, but in terms of what I've taught you in this program and what you're gonna see in various communities, these are some of the primary ones that you're gonna see. So I'll open up to any questions that you guys have based on this chapter and anything that you guys would like to discuss in terms of things that you just would like to confirm whether it's a misunderstanding or not. So the way that you ask your question is just put that into the comment section of Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. The moderators will see that and get your question asked during the class, or you can raise your hand electronically and ask any questions or follow-up questions. Let's start off with a question from Miranda. Uh, my question is, you've said before that a person would have needed to attain enlightenment in order to teach the path to enlightenment. Obviously, like you said, um, not every person that attains enlightenment is a Buddha. But I would be wondering what would be the difference in the depth of the, of the teachings between a teachings coming from a Buddha 
and teaches coming from a person who has attained enlightenment. Yeah, so the difference is, is say you were interested in learning how to build a car and you learned how to build a car from the original, original person who actually invented the car versus someone who's 2,500 years removed from that person and now that person's going to teach you how to build a car. The original person who actually invented the car is going to have deep, profound wisdom because they're the ones who intimately understand what it takes to build this car. And the same thing for a Buddha. For them to attain enlightenment on their own, what a Buddha is doing, and the reason why we call them perfectly enlightened, is they're going to do certain things in their practice, and if it works and it helps them gain more clarity of mind, they know that that's part of the teachings. That's the path to enlightenment. And if it doesn't work, then they're going to discard it and they're going to eliminate it from their practice. So by the time a Buddha attains enlightenment, the only thing they know is exactly, 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 precisely what it takes to attain enlightenment. And they have deep, profound wisdom of how to attain enlightenment because they did it on their own. Somebody who's many thousands of years removed from a Buddha, they will have had to kind of drift around from teacher to teacher to teacher to teacher, and they would have been picking up things along the way. And while they may be enlightened, maybe 60 or 80% of the things that they actually know actually led to their enlightenment, but they still have kind of like 20 or 40% of extra baggage that didn't actually truly lead to their enlightenment, but they kind of teach it anyway because they don't really know 100% of what exactly led to their enlightenment because they didn't have the same experiences as a Buddha. So when you're learning from that other person, you're going to pick up some extra baggage that doesn't actually lead to enlightenment, but it's just been kind of handed down from person to person to person. So a Buddha's wisdom is so precise and so exact that the only things that they have coming out of their mouth is exactly what the path to enlightenment is. And this is why they can be so beneficial and so effective during their teaching career, because they're not going to be misleading people inadvertently. Only what they're sharing is exactly what leads to enlightenment. This other person, while they may be enlightened, they might be inadvertently sharing things that don't truly lead to enlightenment. Therefore, they're not going to be as successful in sharing the teachings and leading people to enlightenment because they've still got a little extra baggage hanging around from things that don't actually lead to enlightenment. Let's go to Ellie next. Hi, Teacher David. Um, my question is, um, in all tradition, um, they like, like when they move in a new house or when somebody's dying, stuff like that, they would invite the monks to do chanting, like when someone's dying, they would have like a seven-day chanting and stuff like that. What's your thought on that? Yeah, today the way things happen in the world is mostly very different than what the Buddha actually taught. And I don't have any thoughts about that other than this is just all impermanence. And okay. uh, that's the way that people have come to practice. But if you look at what the Buddha did during his lifetime, when somebody would die, if he was invited to the funeral, 
he would give a talk about impermanence in the Four Noble Truths and things like this. Because at that time of death, during the funeral, people are grieving, people are sorrowful, people are sad and having despair. Right. Their craving, desire, attachment to this individual has arisen this discontentedness. So it's an ideal time to talk about impermanence. It's an ideal time to talk about the Four Noble Truths. Uh, because that's what people really need at that moment to help them understand their sadness and grief. So what the Buddha would do is he would do a talk on the teachings. He didn't come and chant and try to do any kind of mystical, magical, superstitious stuff because that's not what's actually going to help the people that are grieving. Instead, he provided teachings that would help them in their life to get over the grief. And if I was ever invited to a funeral, that's what I would do. I would go in and share teachings with people to help them get over their grief and sorrow. Because the chanting, while it sounds nice and it's all very beautiful, it's actually not helping the people get over their grief. Oh, I see. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. As we look at misunderstandings, David, I've sometimes come across this notion that Buddhism makes one this emotionless, numb, almost robotic type of person. And I thought I'll give you a chance to address that misconception. Yeah. So, you know, when you think about eliminating these pleasant feelings, these painful feelings, these feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, this discontentedness. Well, in the unenlightened state, when you hear that, hold on a second, as part of enlightenment, I'm going to eliminate pleasant feelings. I'm going to eliminate happiness, excitement, elation. Uh, hold on. That's kind of what I live for. That's kind of like what I'm looking for. But that's because the unenlightened mind just doesn't understand what enlightenment is. It's very difficult for an unenlightened mind to understand what enlightenment is. What the unenlightened mind is experiencing is they're experiencing this up and down emotions. They're experiencing happiness, excitement. Then it goes to sadness, anger, frustration, boredom, loneliness, shyness, jealousy, back to happiness, back to excitement. And the mind's just kind of bouncing around based on impermanent conditions, temporary conditions. Whatever's happening, you get a phone call that's really positive and uplifting. Oh, I'm happy. Oh, I get a phone call that's bad news. Now I'm angry or I'm sad or I'm irritated. Or I'm going into this public speaking event, now I'm shy. Somebody got something, a new house, a new car, now I'm jealous, right? So based on these impermanent conditions, the unenlightened mind is gonna be bouncing around. But an enlightened mind, it experiences much joy. An enlightened mind has lots and lots of fun. The enlightened mind experiences more fun, more enjoyment than anybody because you're not experiencing any sadness anger loneliness boredom your mind is never discontent but you're just not basing your feelings on these impermanent conditions so it's not that you're empty of emotion or you're devoid of feelings or that you are bland or something like that it's just that you don't allow these impermanent conditions to shake up your mind so the joy that an enlightened mind experiences is just always there. It's like the light is always on. You're always joyful. So if you get a new car, 
the new car it doesn't make the enlightened mind happy or joyful the car is just a mode of transportation the mind is already joyful before it gets the car it doesn't need the car in order to create the joy the joy is already there and likewise if something negative happens say a family member dies an enlightened mind doesn't become sad because the person has died the enlightened mind understands that this is impermanence so the enlightened mind can remain peaceful calm serene and content with joy despite somebody has died the enlightened mind isn't holding on to this family member so tightly that when somebody dies the mind gets saddened or angry or frustrated or irritated the mind can reside unshakable regardless of what's happening around you and the buddha describes enlightenment as beyond pleasure and pain it's beyond pleasure and pain because pleasure and pain the mind is seeking pleasant feelings and when it gets them it feels these pleasant feelings but when it doesn't get them because of impermanence it experiences these painful feelings that's what the unenlightened mind is doing but the enlightened mind is just always going to be peaceful calm serene and content with joy nothing will ever shake it up whatsoever so that's why i say an enlightened mind actually has more fun more enjoyment it's beyond pleasure and pain because you never experience boredom loneliness sadness anger guilt shame fear the mind is just always peaceful calm serene and content with joy despite what's going on in the world so you can actually have more enjoyment because there's nothing that ever causes discontentedness of any type in the mind so it's not that one isn't experiencing joy it's that one is not reliant on conditions to experience their joy exactly okay and as we look at the misunderstandings of the buddhist teachings and as we encounter those and in life and even falsely attributed quotes to the buddha do you feel that it's wholesome for us to correct these things or is this a situation where it's best just to let others live their own practice it's best to let others live their own practice live their own life if somebody ask for guidance or they are interested in understanding then you can share with them so i see fake quotes attributed to the buddha across facebook all the time I have these kind of like nice little blurbs that I will post to kind of like let somebody know because I know that they're just posting those things cuz they don't know and I have uh, what I feel are very polite, kind, friendly, respectful ways to just bring to their attention that this isn't a accurate quote. And it took me a while to figure out the language to use because earlier versions of that people would get angry they would get frustrated they would talk bad then i had to refine the language more and more and uh now occasionally if i see a lot of fake buddha quotes coming across my news feed i will kind of use this as a way of kind of helping people see the truth but once i post that you know i don't have any expectations of what will or will not happen beyond that but there's situations where i can post those things and it may or may not help people but i don't have a craving desire attachment to do it and there's plenty of occasions where people are posting fake buddha quotes and i just keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling but there's kind of like once every 6 months once every 3 months 
I'll see, you know, four, five, six, eight in a row. And I'm like, okay, well, the weeds are growing. I need to kind of like cut these back a little bit. So I'll start sharing politely some comments to help people see. And then they'll kind of go away for three months or six months. And then I'll kind of share a little bit more. But I never do it in a vindictive way or an aggressive way or a forceful way. I just try to be as polite and kind and friendly as possible just as a way to bring to their attention that this isn't the Buddhist teachings. And then I give them a link and a resource to help them see what the Buddhist teachings really are. Because otherwise, it's just my word versus their word. So I use this very nice blurb, and then I give them a link to actually see what the real true teachings are so that they can understand it more clearly. But that's not like my mission in life. You know, I'm not beating a drum to make that happen. It's just like, oh, okay, I see something over here that's a little bit off. Well, let me help that person. And in some cases, if I've helped that person in the past and I know that they're still continuing to post those teachings, then I just let it go. You know, I'll just share it with that person one time. They don't heave the advice, so they just keep posting fake Buddha quotes. So just let it go and just, okay, at least I let them know. And they had an opportunity to see the truth and they're choosing not to see the truth, and that's their choice. But see, I feel like as a teacher, I'm kind of contributing to the Facebook community, for example, in a way to help people see what the true teachings are. If I was just a ordinary practitioner that I, I wasn't a teacher of these teachings, I don't know that I would be as active in Facebook as I really am. But I know that there's a lot of people out there with a lot of discontentedness and a lot of suffering. And I feel that I have the answers that are going to help them with that. And where I can, in very polite ways, I see a little crack in the door. I will kind of share something to help people here and there. But I'm very selective about how I do that and where I do that and making sure that I'm doing it with no craving, desire, attachment whatsoever. Thank you, David. That seems to be all the questions we have for today. Okay. So here you see some of the most common misunderstandings that we have in the world with Gautama Buddhist teachings. And there's plenty of others as well. There's 2,500 years of impermanence here. And our goal isn't to clean up the world. That's not what our goal as an individual practitioner is. Our goal should be to clean up our own mind, eliminating and eradicating the challenges that exist in our own mind. That's what the Buddha taught and that's what he focused on. Because during his lifetime, there were plenty of other people that were teaching what they considered to be the path to enlightenment. He didn't go out of his way to go out and try to teach other people what the true path was. Instead, he allowed people to come to him because his mind was already peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. He already knew the truth. And as more and more people understood, they came to him and asked him for guidance and asked him for help. Now, there were certain situations where all these aesthetics would kind of meet in a common meeting area and kind of eat together. And in that common meeting area, people would ask him questions and then he would reply and answer. But he didn't go out of his way to try to clean up the world because you can't force somebody to attain enlightenment. It's not possible. In order for someone to attain enlightenment, there's a million and one decisions that they're going to have to make 
in order to actually attain enlightenment. They have to actively learn, investigate the teachings. They have to meditate and meditate and meditate. They have to learn the Eightfold Path inside and out, back and forward, make lots of wholesome decisions. So these misunderstandings that I share with you are not as a way for you to go out into the world and tell people that you know what the true teachings are and they don't. It's more for your practice so that as you go in the world and you see that people are misunderstanding the teachings, that you'll understand what the true teachings are and that you won't look at others in a derogatory way or you won't look down on them or think that they're and somehow done something wrong. It's just that they don't understand what they don't understand. That's that craving, anger and ignorance or the unknowing of true reality that the Buddha talks about. But the more that you base your practice on the Pali Canon and what the Buddha taught, which is what I share in these programs and all the resources that I share, you can independently verify the truth for yourself, gain the wisdom, see that your condition of the mind is improving and the condition of your life is improving, then you will know the truth. And this is why when I teach these programs, I always teach don't ever believe me because belief isn't going to lead to your enlightenment. But independently verifying what I'm sharing is the truth and gaining wisdom. That's what will lead to your enlightenment. And focusing on your own practice is where the real benefits are. If you went out into the world and tried to change the world to do things the way that you're understanding in the Pali Canon, that's a huge job, a huge undertaking that even a Buddha wouldn't subscribe to. Even a Buddha is not going to go out and try to force people to uh, learn his teachings. A Buddha is going to make themselves available for anybody who chooses to learn with them. And then once people step forward and choose to learn, a Buddha is prepared to be able to share with them and help them see the truth. But then ultimately they have to do the work to be able to see that truth and gain the wisdom and get to enlightenment. So these misunderstandings are for you. They're for your practice. So it helps you to see the path more and more clearly because the more illuminated this path is, the more clear that you see it, the more likely you'll be able to walk this path and ultimately get to enlightenment. And that's the true goal is for you to get to enlightenment. Next Sunday, we're going to be in the frequently asked questions sections of the book. After this main chapter, this is the last main chapter of the book, there is a section called frequently asked questions. And there's about 11 or so questions in there that tend to be the most frequently asked that I get as a teacher. So I just made a section called frequently asked questions. And we'll go through that one by one and help you see the answers to these most frequently asked questions. Again, as a way to help you to gain insight into what are the actual teachings and what leads to enlightenment. On this Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation together. So you're welcome to come at the same time, either Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and you'll be able to do meditation together as a group. And starting September 1st, we're going to restart this program from the very beginning. So if you've just recently found us and you'd like to start from the beginning, you're welcome to join us for these last few classes as we finish out this program. But then on September 1st, we're going to be restarting this program from the very beginning. It's all based on this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. And you can download it for free from our website, 
buddhadailywisdom.com. Just click on the button on the upper right corner for free books. And you can also get printed versions of it from Amazon as well. And what we do is on Sundays, we go through all the main chapters of the book. And I do a talk and give you a chance to ask questions. And then on Wednesdays, I help you with breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, and Buddhist chanting to help you build up your practice. And going through from the beginning of this program, you'll be able to build up your practice using the words of the Buddha. So if you've been learning in other places and you would like to really work with a teacher with personal guidance and classes like this and then offline i offer ways that you can get personal guidance this is a perfect program for you to be able to develop your practice and get more guidance for those of you guys that have been in this program already you're welcome to retake this program as many times as you like and there's also on saturdays the Pali Canon and english study group which uses volumes two through 13 of this same book series, The Words of the Buddha. And we do that on Saturdays where students are reading chapters in the book and then come to class and we study it together. So between Sunday, Wednesday, and Saturday, you can attend these classes live, or if you miss them for any reason, which you're going to because of impermanence, you can watch them on our YouTube channel and Facebook or on our podcast, and you can take that content in at your own pace. And as you build up your practice more and more, you'll be able to see that the condition of the mind is gradually improving the more that you're learning the truth of the Buddhist teachings and the more that you develop your life practice, you will see that the discontentedness gradually diminishes and the mind becomes more peaceful. So thank you all for joining. I really appreciate your diligence in learning and practicing these teachings. I'll see you in a future class, either this Wednesday, Saturday, or next Sunday. Have a lovely rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.